Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is Louis Gadima, author of the second edition of Bullseye Marketing, How to Grow Your B2B Business Faster, and you're listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back Louis Gadima to talk about his book, Bullseye Marketing, How to Grow Your B2B Business Faster. Louis Gadima helps B2B companies build their brands and generate leads as a fractional CMO and marketing strategist. He also mentors MIT startups as part of its venture mentoring service, and since 2015, has led an annual marketing boot camp for the MIT startup community. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. Louis previously founded a marketing agency serving enterprise companies such as IBM and the Boston Globe. He then pivoted it to a SaaS company where he grew it into one of the top companies in its national markets before a successful exit. He's also acted as vice president of business development at two mid-sized marketing agencies. For several years, Louis was the head of the executive committee for Boston Sales and Marketing Innovators Professional Association. Louis speaks frequently on marketing and business at regional and national events, and he's written for leading business sites, including the Harvard Business Review, Marketing Profs, IDG Connect, Marketer, Chief Mark Tech, Venture Beat, the Content Marketing Institute, and e-consultancy. And if that's not enough, he also ghostwrites and co-writes business and marketing books. And interesting facts, he grew up on a farm in Illinois, and he has won poker tournaments at casinos. Louie, congratulations on the second edition of Bullseye Marketing, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. It is a pleasure to be back talking with you again. Yes. So now you've won a lot of poker tournaments. I'm curious because I can't see you right now, nor can the listener. Are you currently wearing mirrored sunglasses? <laughs> I, I'm not. I don't. Since we're only talking, I don't have my light on, so I, I'm I'm not using the uh, mirrored sunglasses. Okay. But uh, I do often wear a, a hoodie sweatshirt. Oh. And my daughter is the senior marketing manager for the professional women's soccer team in Los Angeles, uh, Angel City, and I often wear that sweatshirt. Oh, okay, cool. Was it because it gets cold in those casinos, or it deliberately gets cold in casinos? They—that's one of the ways that they uh, keep people there longer, apparently. 
Oh, okay. Well, they know what they're doing. So another interesting fact about Louis Gadima, folks, is that you are a, a graduate of the University of Michigan. And I've interviewed five Michigan grads in the Marketing Book Podcast, and they've all written excellent books. And I even set up a little LinkedIn chat for all of you to you know, talk about uh, various things. And as I'm sure most of the folks in Boston – uh, where you live, are aware that uh, Tom Brady also went to Michigan. And as I understand it, you used to see him quite often in Boston at all the Michigan alumni cocktail parties. And you haven't seen him as much since he moved to Florida and started playing for the for the Buccaneers. Of course, he's retired now. But is it true the last time you saw him is when the two of you drove the U-Haul with his stuff from Boston down to Tampa? I'm not going to comment on that. You know, uh, you know, there was that uh, midnight run of his, and, you know, that will just be a thing between Tom and me. Well, you know, and that's why you're such a good friend, because, you know, what, <laughs> you know, what happens with Louie stays with Louie, and that's cool. So now you are in Boston, and uh, I have to ask, uh, do you need to buy any appliances? <laughs> do I need to buy any appliances? Yeah, for your house. You, you live in uh, Newton, right? I do. Mm-hmm. You're all set on the appliances? Are you selling? No, no. But if you or anyone in your area of Boston needs an appliance, you need to go to Yale Appliance. Now, they're not a paid sponsor of this show, but uh, Steve Sheinkoff is the CEO of Yale Appliance, and he listens to every episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. And he likes it so much, he even sent me a box of several bottles of uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, which you're all free to do. But he was also featured in Marcus Sheridan's book, They Ask You Answer, because they produce so much helpful content for their customers. And I live in Virginia, and I was having to buy some new appliances about two or three years ago. And I was Googling reviews and all that, and his site kept coming up. And I thought, you know, I'm going to have to just fly to Boston, rent a truck, and go buy from him. So anyway, but well, listen, seriously, if any of you in the Boston area uh, need an appliance, I want you to go to Yale Appliance and ask for the Marketing Book Podcast special. Now, I don't know what it is, actually, <laughs> but I just want you to go and give Steve a hard time and uh, talk to him about to, about his marketing. So the one thing I might need appliances for is, is my wife and I have bought an, an RV. Uh, and we plan and a truck to pull it, right? And an F-150 to pull it. So uh, we plan to do some serious RVing in our future. As we're downsizing our house, we're upsizing our RV. So, Louis, as I was rereading your book uh, in this last week, there was this one song that just kept going through my head, and now I want to put this earworm in every listener's ear. <laughs> anyway, Louie, I'm sure you heard that song quite a bit at the fraternity houses at, uh, at Michigan, and now I want everyone to think of Louie Gadima when they hear that song. So let's get on to the book, shall we? This is a big book, and it's uh, about two pounds. And when you're the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, you, you do a lot of extra you know, kind of irrelevant research, but it was fun to do. It's about 360 pages. And, you know, as I was reading through the book again, it occurred to me that there must be about 50 other books that came to mind for each little section that you cover. So this is like a, this is like a survey course, <laughs> your book. And as you know, I'm a big fan of your book. And I even started implementing some of the ideas from the first edition, even before I interviewed you. Uh, the first time we talked. And I've since given presentations over the years uh, that reference this bullseye approach that we're going to talk about, which I just find so helpful. So 
for those who have read the book or are familiar with the bullseye marketing approach, briefly, what are the new and or different things in this revised edition? Yeah, so the book is really operates on two levels. On the one hand, it's uh, strategic. It's a 30,000-foot uh, mark, bullseye marketing framework. And then it's very uh, in the weeds, uh, how to execute on about 20 different marketing channels. Mm-hmm. And what's uh, uh, one of the big differences is, of course, the first edition was B2B and B2C, and this is exclusively B2B, which is really more of my expertise mm-hmm. and something where I thought uh, it really needed to be. And secondly, this is informed by a lot more research that I existed five years ago when the first when I put out the first edition, uh, but I wasn't aware of it. And um, one of your faithful listeners, Matt Berkman, mm-hmm. uh, who is a big fan of the first edition, and we connected on Twitter because of, of that, I, I tweeted him a few years ago and said, you know, what are some books on branding that you recommend? And he recommended Byron Sharp's How Brands Grow. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, pulling on that thread let, led me to Les Bennett and Peter Field, the long and short of it, and many other writers who have done such great research about the importance of brand. Mm-hmm. And so um, the third section of the book, which used to be called uh, Cast a Wider Net, now is much more accurately or scientifically called how to you know build your brand and and mental availability mm-hmm. and, and what those mean and so the book really is um, it, it it turned out I was right in the general concept but I didn't have all the research and some of the terminology like mental availability uh, and I didn't understand. Uh, and this is a key part of this uh, new edition, the really central role of creativity in building your brand. And that the messaging for lead generation campaigns is fundamentally different from the messaging for branding campaigns. Yes. And I want to talk about that because I really – as I like to joke, don't tell the other chapters, but I really like chapter 13 the best. And I think that was that's where you talk about the importance of brand, and we're going to talk about that. But also, you've got 189 footnotes, and again, <laughs> more, more trivia. I love the way you did your footnotes, and here's, here's why. This is for the, the authors out there who are writing a book. You don't force the reader to figure out what chapter they're reading and then go into the footnotes at the end and then find the chapter and then the footnotes. In other words, you just oh, okay. you go straight through it. I wish uh, more were like that. And I yeah, I was I was digging into this stuff. So that was uh that was great. And also in the uh, section on display ads, which I want to talk about, uh, you talk about uh the the creativity and building a brand and uh that was very uh helpful. So uh before we get into some of the specific phases. I'm going to go back to the beginning of the book and ask just a couple of big questions. And a lot of marketers may may know this, but I just have a feeling that because you wrote about this, you get a surprise look from maybe CEOs. And that is where you write on page 10, you have a section explain companies that market better grow faster. Why did you include that? And do you find a lot of people surprised when you explain that to them? Yeah, and I, I got to say, um, you're being very modest, Douglas, because even before that in the book is the foreword that you wrote. <laughs> right. And I am so grateful 
that, uh, first of all, you encouraged me to write a second edition uh, a few years ago. And then you were generous enough to write the foreword for it when I when I did that. And uh, I, I love the foreword, and I appreciate that you wrote it. Well, thank you. And I was didn't mention it because I was concerned about your credibility, as I am for all my guests who, you know, <laughs> people question their judgment by coming on this podcast alone. So, But I, I appreciate it, and I meant every word I wrote. I, I really – I liked it very much. And here I – again, this I, – so I read it a couple years ago. I read it. In January, where you sent me a digital version to so I could write the forward, and then I read it again this last week, and I just really enjoyed it. So <laughs> maybe That's this isn't great. the last one. This is a glutton for punishment. But yeah. uh, all right. So the point is that companies that market better grow faster, and it is uh, definitely the case that many companies do not market. Um, so I did research. Uh, a few years ago where I looked at 351 uh, B2B companies with um, 50 to 1,000 employees. So these were not tiny companies. These were um, small and mid-sized companies. And if you look at the U.S. economy, that's really the heart of the economy. Those companies with several hundred to 1,000 employees have a huge part of, of the employment of the economy. Um, enterprises are companies that are bigger than 1,000. Um, and there's, you know, far fewer of those than the, the ones that are in that 50 to a thousand employee range. And I, I have this nine point digital marketing scorecard that I developed when I was a VP of business development at, at those marketing agencies so that I could kind of evaluate a company even before I started to talk to them about how robust, how sophisticated was their marketing. And these were nine things that I could see about a company like, were they running search ads? Uh, were they uh, active on social media? At the time, several years ago, did they have a mobile-friendly site? Now, you know, 98% of, of websites are, although occasionally you run into one that isn't, and, and so forth. So nine different things that I could tell from the outside. And it was kind of a, a shorthand for me as, as the VP of BizDev to know how robust and, frankly, what were they doing and what were they not doing that we might talk about. And so then I realized two things when I looked at those 351 companies. The software companies scored a median of seven out of nine. The non-software companies in manufacturing, medical devices, professional services had a median of two. And a few years later, when I repeated the study, three out of nine. So I think... So there was progress. That's what you're saying. No, that, that all of that progress came from the transition from to mobile-friendly websites. Okay, uh, so there was no progress. In fact, uh, in three don't or be four fooled the by measures, the numbers. Yeah, yeah, three or four of the measures they actually declined. And so, first of all, I was bummed for like two weeks when I realized that all of these marketing, all of this marketing technology and data and programs that people in the digital marketing world and the SaaS world were used to that the big part of the B2B world was not using at all. And and they were just unaware of it. And then I looked at those 85 software companies and said, well, do these nine programs matter? Uh, you know, are the ones that, that score higher actually growing faster? And, I, and, and there's the chart in the book uh, showing that the the companies that score the highest score eight or nine, 
were growing five times faster than the companies that scored zero to three. And it was like a direct linear progression. It's like as close of a perfect correlation as you could ask for. So why do you think companies are not marketing? The ones that scored a two or three out of nine. Yeah. So I, I think the first is um, that there are there are so many marketing channels. Marketing used to be fairly simple 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were only six or eight channels. You know, you did print, you know, TV, radio, direct mail, a few other things, events. Uh, but now there's, thir- you know, 30 or 40 channels and there's new ones. Now, you know, oh boy, how do I use ChatGPT for my marketing? Now I got to keep up with that too. Yeah. Uh, so it's gotten really complex. There's t- over 10,000 vendors selling marketing software, as Scott Brinker has, has documented. And they're all making outrageous claims. Um, and uh, for either their technique, be it social media or inbound or whatever it may be, or for their particular, uh, that you know, if, if someone did not grow up in marketing and very few CEOs did, uh, they just tune it all out. It's like so much noise, they don't know where to start, and uh, they think of it as, you know, it's probably an expense, but it, they don't know what to do. And then the the other problem is that if they do try it, they're likely to try one of my phase three programs right. like content marketing or yes. social media or things that get a lot of buzz but actually take two or three years to really produce results. After six months, they get nothing from it. And they say, see, we tried it. It doesn't work for us. Yeah, those naming rights we bought at the stadium, that's not doing anything <laughs> for us. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I think all of those play into why many companies don't do marketing, and which means it's a huge opportunity for those who do. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And in case people might feel overwhelmed, because you talked about that, and it's a big book, but on page 17, you write, if you do even half of what I propose in this book, you'll be way ahead of the vast majority of companies out there, which... Reminds me, when you and your friend are being chased by a bear, do you have to run faster than the bear, Louis? <laughs> no, you just have to run faster than your friend. Yeah, so your competitors... Your former friend, right? Yeah. Well, my, my soon-to-be-late friend. Yes. But I could argue that I was, I was running for help. So uh, I think that this is important for folks to realize because, uh, I mean, listeners, come on, some of your competitors suck at this. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to get some great results. I see it all the time. Now, I want to read an excerpt from uh, page 19 and 20, and then we'll get into the uh, the bullseye marketing uh, concept. And then and I'm going to ask you a couple of just interesting questions that I found throughout the book. But first, I want to paint a picture of a key visual from the book for the listener. So I'm talking about the bullseye. So it you know it has a you know a red dot in the middle, and then a white circle around that. And then around the white circle is the outer blue circle. And you can pick whatever color you like. So it's it's three circles, and it looks like the side of a British military aircraft where they have a, a red dot and then a white circle and then a blue circle on the outermost part. And the red dot is phase one, and the next circle is phase two, and then the outermost circle is phase three. So quoting from page 19, 
Bullseye Marketing prioritizes the fastest, least expensive tactics for generating new leads, opportunities, and sales. With Bullseye Marketing, you work from the center out. In phase one, we take full advantage of the marketing assets that the company already has. Assets such as customers, website traffic, first-party data, email lists, and our ability to listen to quickly produce measurable results. Okay, that's the middle of the bullseye. In phase two, we generate leads and sales from people who don't yet know about us, but who are looking to buy right now. And in phase three, we build awareness and mental availability for our company and offerings with people who are interested in our industry and solutions, could someday be customers, but as far as we know, are not buying right now. We want to make sure that these people know about us, think well of us, and will put us high on their shortlist when they are ready to buy. That is the definition of mental availability. Many marketers and non-marketing executives are so focused on spreading the word about their great offerings that without realizing it, they do this in the reverse order. They start with programs in the outer ring, like social media, content marketing, blogging, videos, speeches, etc., and display advertising, all aimed to convince people why they need their company's solution, which usually are among the slowest and most expensive ways to generate new business. And they miss the great opportunity right under their noses. And because they do this backward, they all too often have poor initial results and soon give up saying, we knew it. Marketing doesn't work for us, but it could work if they used bullseye marketing. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary They wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. So briefly, Louis, Walk us through the three phases, and then we'll go back and and talk about a few specifics from each of these phases. Yeah, so the center of the bullseye is taking advantage of marketing assets that the company already has. But might not even realize they have, like an email list. Right. So, I I mean, I've had so many situations, uh, Douglas, where I start to work with a, a company or I'm even just talking to them, and I say, how many email contacts do you have? And they'll say... Oh, you know, we have 12,000, we have 20,000, you know, whatever it may be. It may be 1,200. And I say, so how often do you send out an email? And they say, oh, you know, at the holidays. And email marketing is almost free. It's highly effective. And, you know, it's it, that's a marketing asset, that email list. Getting the messaging right on your website. You know, you're going to have a website. If you have the right message, it makes a vast difference to how effective your your website is for a clear message. I I saw Rand Fishkin actually uh, just tweeted about this a few days ago saying, you know, make sure your homepage explains really clearly what it is you're selling and what do you do. Um, 
or you have uh, conversion optimization. When people come to your website, there should be offers. And it, it, you know, the basic logic of conversion optimization is, is so simple. It's that it's much easier to get twice as many people who are already coming to your website to engage with you than it is to double the amount of traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you can, if you can get twice as many leads or even just engagements that people sign up for your stuff and and give you permission to market to them and add them to your email list and so forth, um, those are all wins, and they cost almost nothing. They're they're so fast and easy to do. And then you know, there's a few others like. Uh, you still can do remarketing, which is a highly effective tactic. Uh, getting your sales and marketing teams working together better so that, for example, when a new lead comes in, a hot lead, sales is informed and acts on it within minutes, mm-hmm. not within days, you know, because uh, the, the company that reacts fastest often is the company that wins the deal. So those are all things that take almost no money um, and can have a, a huge effect. And, and so that's the center of the bullseye. Then the f- next ring out is using intent data to identify those customers who do plan to buy soon. Now, 95% of your market probably does not plan to buy soon. Mm-hmm. And this is something most people don't realize. Right, right. And, and so people think, oh, if we do marketing, that, you know, we've got a total addressable market. There's 10,000, you know, com- companies in, in the, uh, you know, that we can be marketing to, et cetera. But of those 10,000, 9,500 are not planning to buy today. Mm-hmm. They have a re- bought recently or they're happy with their vendor or it's just not on their list of priorities for this year. It's not been budgeted. It's like Louis Gadima's appliances. Exactly, exactly. Or they they simply don't think that they need uh, what you're selling. You know, you're selling, you know, marketing software, and they're not marketing. Right. Uh, so ninety five percent of your market is not buying today, but you certainly do want to try to get in front of the five percent that is. And that's where you use, for example, search ads, um, because often people who are planning to buy soon do use search, you know, to to research or look for vendors. Right. And then there's some and, other ways to get intent data, and that's actually the very shortest part of the whole book is is phase two. It is. Yeah. It is. And then uh, phase three is what we're all familiar with. That's that's the naming rights for the stadium, right? No. <laughs> well, phase three is uh, really about brand building and building. Uh, mental availability, which was not a term I knew five years ago, mm-hmm. which is why it's not in the first edition. But as uh, Byron Sharp makes clear, mental availability is much more than awareness. Mental availability is that people will think of your brand when they are ready to buy, when that does become uh, a priority at their company. Right. And that's different from trying to get those 95% to want to buy from you right now it's it's a different it's a different game it's a different golf grip yeah you can't convince people who don't you know it's almost impossible to convince a company that doesn't want to buy that no really they do need to buy this now <laughs> right. you know if, if if they haven't budgeted for it if it isn't a, a, a priority internally you know it's not going to happen yeah but 
uh, I had a situation, I'll give you a great example of mental availability, of when I was VP of business development. And the first call I got at this agency was a guy who said, I've been following your agency for two or three years. I've seen your CEO speak. I read your blog. I really like your approach. We're finally ready for, to do something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was a pretty easy deal to close yes. uh, because we had built up, not I as a salesperson, but the agency through effective marketing had built up that mental availability with them so that when his boss said to him, uh, we need to do this, he knew exactly the agency he wanted to talk to about it. Well, Louis, I want to go to page 24. And quote this and ask you a question. You write, the fastest and least expensive leads in sales are initially in the center of the bullseye. As you move out from the center toward the edge, the cost for each new lead in sale is likely to increase and your ROI decrease, at least in the short term. So why do it then? Well, because it's still profitable. And in the long run, it'll be much more profitable. So for example, if you do content marketing. Initially, I believe I quote in the book um, a person from WordStream, you know, a, a very successful uh, company that does software for managing online ads. And the person from WordStream says that when they started to do content, it took a few years to see any results. And then it really started to have an impact. And if you look at, and, and this is one of the things you know, people often don't realize is you may have to do 100 or 200 pieces of content before they start to generate a lot of traffic. Mm -hmm. Um, And you need to not just create them, but you need to amplify them and and get them, you know, distributed so that people are seeing them. You know, it's something Mark Schaefer talks about in the content code. And so, it's not like you're going to write three blog posts and suddenly you're going to double your leads or something. That stuff takes time. It's the same thing with most brand advertising. I don't know if you've ever read Phil Knight's Shoe Dog. I haven't, but I'm familiar with the book. Oh, Douglas, read it. I mean, if you like reading books uh, about business, it is a, it is in my top five. It is a fabulous read about starting a company. And he says... That, you know, early on, he said to the ad agency, you know, can you prove that if we do this ad, I'm going to get any more business? And they said, no, we can't. But, of course, Nike is now one of the biggest brand marketers in the world. And it's because now they can prove that they have. Adidas, a few years ago, uh, famously about eh, six years ago, said, you know, we're going to leave the brand marketing stuff to Nike. We're going to just going to do this digital marketing. It's highly measurable. We can optimize it. We can see what the results are. We're going that way. And after three or four years, they announced publicly that they had screwed up, that their sales were dropping because they they weren't doing the brand marketing. And uh, even for small companies, in, in the book, I quote Jalei Razai, who was the CMO for Gusto. And, you know, uh, a number of your listeners are probably familiar with Gusto, an online payments service, payroll service. And while she was CMO, the company grew from 500 to 50,000 customers. And she says that 
their brand marketing was the lowest converting, but whenever she would turn it off, six months later, their lead generation would go in the tank. Yes, that was great. Great story. And, yeah, and she said that brand supports lead gen. Lead gen does not build your brand, but yes. brand supports lead gen. And so to have more effective lead gen, you need to be doing the brand marketing also. Right. And there's another part in the book where you write about how – do you think those big companies like Nike and Coca-Cola, do you think they not, they don't know what they're doing? <laughs> yeah, comes, exactly. When it comes to building their brand and doing all the other things? Uh, or even like there was a, another book on the show a while back where the author was talking about he lives in – or he was in Northern California and he saw all these Apple billboards. <laughs> he said on the highway. And he yeah. said – do you think they don't know what they're doing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, and I'm amazed at the number of people, digital marketers, who are like uh, skeptical of advertising. Yes, yes. Like, oh. like you know, the biggest companies in the world don't know what they're doing. They have no way of measuring this. They're spending billions of dollars just, uh, you know, on a wish and a prayer. Yeah, and they'll say, oh, but that's a billion-dollar company. And I'll say, yeah, but you don't have to be a billion-dollar company to do some advertising that that works well. So, no, I, I have a, a sheet in there where I show a five thousand dollar a month spend mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that was very effective for that company. Yeah. Well, let me go on to uh, one other really, really important part. And you write on page twenty nine that before you start on phase one of bullseye marketing, you should first work out your positioning and messaging because these are going to affect everything you do from who your customers are to how you communicate with them. And it's funny because last week I interviewed Andy Cunningham who wrote Get to Aha and she's uh, very well known as the person who worked with Steve Jobs for many years uh, in the 1980s to get them uh, positioned correctly and it was a very smart uh, smart book. So again, it, I, I read that one section from this one chapter and I say, oh, there's a whole book about about this yes, one, exactly. One little second. Oh, there's, so. a, there's, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of books behind. Yeah. Uh, but but talk about what you mean there in, in terms of like if you were to say you need to work on your positioning and your messaging, and you're talking to somebody who doesn't understand why they should even bother with marketing, like those two out of nine people that we were talking about. Explain what yeah. you mean there. So positioning is if you go back to the uh, positioning book by. Uh, Trout and Reese, mm -hmm. you know, a, a marketing classic from 40 years ago. Um, what they talk about is what's the, what's the niche in the mind of the customer that you want to own? You know, this kind of relates to mental availability. Again, what's the, if they're going to buy one thing, uh, what, what's that one thing that you provide that you want to be that one thing they think of you for? And when you try to be everything to everybody, you end up being nothing. Um, but a, a very effective tactic f for B2B companies is to focus on a narrow, specific market niche. And I give an example in, in the book of a company called Industrial Marketing that is a marketing agency that really focuses on manufacturing companies. Mark Manuel, marketing book podcast listener. Yes, he is. And, yes. and, and a good-looking guy, I should add. As, as all your listeners are. Thank you. And he's a, a, an active member of Sales and Marketing Innovators in Boston, which mm -hmm. you, you spoke to. He's good people, folks. He's good people. You know who else is good he people? Is. Who's in the SAMI? 
Evelyn Starr, Ringo Starr's daughter. She is. Yes. Author of Teenage Waste Brand. In fact, when I spoke to that organization virtually, that's how I first met her. Okay. Yeah. No, Evelyn's terrific. So, um, you know, it, and it's been a very effective strategy for Mark's company. And it's, uh, you know, and I give the example in the book of how I pivoted my uh, marketing agency when I wanted to become, uh, adopt a recurring revenue model to focus just on designing and developing and, and hosting with a content management system websites for small colleges and private schools, which is what the agency then you know pivoted to become a SaaS company and became, as you said, one of the three or four top companies nationally in its niche. You know, but that's an example of, of positioning, that we weren't now doing websites for everybody. We were doing them just for that academic market. Right. Right. And even within that market, we had a position of the company that knew marketing. So if companies were, if schools were looking for, like, they, they thought of the website as a whole data integration, back-end kind of thing, and the front-end was kind of secondary, we weren't going to win that. But if they thought of it, and in those cases, I was usually talking to the head of IT, and I knew we weren't going to win. But if I was talking to the head of communications or the head of admissions, and they thought of the website project as a communications and a marketing project, then we had a very high likelihood to win. And in sales, no is your second favorite word, because yeah. you knew not to waste time with something that wasn't going to close. And there was a book on the show in 2019 by Steve Woodruff. The book is called Clarity, and he's the king of clarity. And he talks in the book about why that's so important for companies. And one of the reasons that you might not realize is that when you're very clear about what you do, it makes it so much easier for people to refer you Oh, sure. to other businesses. And one thing I did in terms of saying no, when I was VP of business development for those agencies, I would routinely say to people who called up, we're not the right agency for you. You should talk to this one instead. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were very happy to get that referral. They were, they were, you know, grateful that I didn't waste their time. And we didn't, I didn't waste my time. I didn't waste our agency's time on projects we shouldn't be doing. Yes. Time is a terrible thing to waste. So I want to jump to the part of the book that got me so fired up as usual. And uh, let's see, it's on page 44, before you go into chapter four and you write, but before we drill down into quick win opportunities, I want to focus on the customer. If we don't understand our customer, it doesn't matter how well we execute bullseye marketing tactics. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? And you go on to write, Building your business begins with understanding your customer. While many people think of marketing as just being about advertising and promotion, the central role of marketing is actually understanding the customer, the market, and working with the rest of the company to create those products and services that will have a chance for success. Can you dig it? So, Louis Gadima, what is the number one way to do customer research? Uh, to talk to customers. Oh, <laughs> wait, what? I know this is kind of radical. I, I, you know, I mentioned chat GPT a few minutes ago and I actually saw a very experienced and respected marketer talk about using chat GPT for customer insights. Oh. 
It's like, oh, good. Now we have another reason not to talk to customers. Yes. Uh, You know, one of there's a um, uh, a program for startups called iCorp. I letter I Corp, and uh, they require the the startups that are in the program to talk to a hundred customers and come back with what they learned. Yes, um, and that that is the cheapest, best research you can do. You can find out so much about whether you're on the right track or not. You know, because I do work with startups both as a mentor at MIT, but also you know as a fractional CMO, and you know, it's a, a shame when a company spends years or, or millions of dollars in some cases developing something the market really doesn't care about. Right. And so if they had done those interviews in advance, they would have known whether or not it was something that was needed. Right. And you're right. This may seem obvious, but when working with companies, especially startups and small companies, I am amazed at how many executives are resistant to simply sitting down and talking with even a few dozen of their potential customers. But these conversations are by far the fastest, least expensive, and most valuable input they could get when launching a new company or product and improving results from their existing ones. And then since we've got startup on the brain here, there was another thing on page 54 where you write, in the startup world, product market fit is everything. And although that term may not be used much in more mature industries, it's just as critical for them. You achieve product market fit when you have both a market of significant size and a product that addresses the needs and pains of that market. So Louis Gadima. What then is the best way to establish product market fit? Once again, to talk to customers. (laughs) You know, if you talk to customers and you show them, tell them what you have in mind, and this isn't a sales call. This is very important to understand. These conversations are not sales calls. Mm, Yes. And make it clear that you're not trying to sell them anything. And you can find out where you're right, where you're, you know, headed in the wrong direction. And if you do have a product idea, that um, is good. Twenty percent of the time or more, the 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 customers on those calls, the potential customers on those calls, will say, you know, if you go ahead and build this, I would be interested in it, probably in buying it. So you know, get back to me at that time. And right. if no one says that, that's a real red flag. Yes, yes, that was great. Another example of this, uh, you know, with Jalay Rizai that I mentioned before from Gusto who's now the CEO of Mutiny, she talks about how if you want to build a partner program, don't spend a month studying other partner programs. Start talking to a partner a day, a potential partner a day, and explain what you have in mind. And they'll tell you if they think that's a good program, if you're offering enough, if your product fits in with their line, et cetera, et cetera. And by the end of the month, rather than having a list of a 1,000 potential partners, You'll probably have five actual partners and a good uh, framework for your partner program because you'll have had 20 or 30 partners tell you, yeah, this would be good. This would not be good. Yes. Well, Louis, jumping ahead, tell us, what is the 500-pound gorilla of bullseye marketing? Well, it's email marketing, but I I say that with uh, an asterisk because uh, email marketing is tremendously effective. But there's a, a, a few times in the book where I say, and such and such 
channel is like account-based marketing, you know, claim to be the most effective. Or referrals. I have a chart in there from Marketo about what are the highest converting channels. So email marketing is, is the 500-pound gorilla, but it's really multi-channel marketing. And it's one of the things that I say at the very end, which is you have a lot of channels that say, this is the best. But it's when you get four to six plus channels working in concert that you get your best results. And also, there's a certain way to do email newsletters. It's not a broadcast medium, necessarily. It's got to be helpful. It's got to be something people look forward to. It's got to be something people would miss if you stopped doing it. For sure. You know, Anne Handley, in her book, Everybody Writes, she talks about how a lot of companies use their newsletter as a you know distribution channel for their other content. And that she thinks a newsletter should be a letter. It should be like a one-to-one message from the CEO or the person sending out the newsletter uh, saying, this is what's on my mind this month or this week. And uh, this is what I'm thinking and thought you might be interested in that too. It's not, here are the 10 blog posts and five videos we did this month. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got all kinds of great things to keep in mind uh, with uh, about email and things like why email open rates are not actually very reliable, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. I want to jump to chapter nine, but on page 43, at the very beginning, you write something I found very interesting. No competitor can stop your marketing and sales team from working together better. And you, it's the same, I believe, the same area where you talk about how your marketing can actually be one of your biggest competitive differentiators. But uh, chapter nine is about sales and marketing collaboration. And you write that bullseye marketers uh, embrace sales and marketing collaboration because companies that get this grow much faster. What are some of the things that companies are doing to get sales and marketing better aligned? Well, the two have to agree on what a lead is. They have to agree on who is responsible for generating leads. The leads are weak. (laughs) You're very good at that, Douglas. The leads are weak. The leads are weak. You're weak. (laughs) A classic, a classic scene. Oh, have I got your attention now? I'll stop. I'm sorry. So, you know, sales and marketing are both going to be generating leads. And they have to say who's responsible for generating how many. That may vary from season to season even, but you need to start somewhere. And when you've defined leads, how are you going to react to them? So, for example, as I mentioned before, uh, if a really hot lead comes in, marketing is going to get it to sales in minutes, and sales is going to respond to it within minutes. Now, I've worked with companies where the heads of marketing, and these were not, you know, tiny companies. You know, these were companies, uh, this particular one I'm thinking of had several hundred million in revenue. And yet, when a lead would come in, sales would take a week or two to act on it, no matter how good it was. That's a dead lead at that point. That, mm-hmm. You know, that person has probably forgotten they even reached out to you. Right. And it's a preview of what it would be like to be a customer, whether that's true or not. Yeah. You know, they didn't care about me when I wanted to talk to them about buying. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how much are they going to care about me as a customer? I I had, you know, an example I give in the book of 
a company that when I was VP of BizDev that contacted us and I knew the company so I didn't even have to take the 10 minutes I normally would to kind of check out, you know, how they score on the digital scorecard, what's their business about, how big are they. I, you know, called them up in two minutes and I was talking to the VP of marketing who, and this was a $750 million company, and I was talking to her in two minutes. And she said, you know, either you have nothing to do or you're incredibly responsive. And I said, well, it's the latter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was a very, another very easy deal to close. And she talked uh, about that forever. This is the guy that called me right back. Yeah. Every time she introduced us to more people on their buying team, that's how she introduced us. Well, there's one part I want to read for all the marketers out there. And this is part of the reason why I've had over 60 books on sales on the Marketing Book Podcast. It's uh, page 145. Take a sales rep to lunch. As bullseye marketers, we should be talking with customers ourselves and bringing research to sales. But salespeople have orders of magnitude more customer contact than we ever will. So be close to your salespeople and learn from them about your customers. Take one of your most experienced, successful salespeople to lunch and find out from them what customers really think about your offerings. What do they like? What are their objections? And how does the salesperson deal with those objections? Good salespeople listen. This is an opportunity for you to listen to them. Arrange a ride-along and go on some sales calls or be a trainee for a day or two and learn about how the actual sales process goes and what customers are saying. This is invaluable research for creating better personas, products, offers, and promotions, and also for creating late-stage content that can help your salespeople close the next deal. Can you dig it? So, Louis, let's jump to uh, phase three in, in our remaining time. And it's about growing your brand's awareness and mental availability, which we'll talk about just a little bit more. And that's that chapter 13, which I agree is yeah, one of my favorites as chapter well. Chapter 13. And phase three is about half the book, okay? And we're not going to have time to talk about everything in here, but I. Let let me just do this for the listener's benefit. Let me mention what the sections are in phase three, and then I just want to ask a couple of quick questions before we wrap up. So it's phase three includes uh, chapters on content marketing, search engine optimization, online display ads, video, TV, and podcasts, social media, public relations and influencer marketing, events and trade shows, direct mail, print and out of home, analytics and attribution, building your marketing team, the agile marketing methodology, and then finally, as you mentioned earlier, creating a multi-channel customer experience. So phase three programs are primarily intended to grow awareness of and mental availability for your brand and offering some of those people who may want to buy at some time in the future but aren't as far as we know in market at this time. And then you go on to write, since 95% of your market is probably not buying today, building mental availability with them with your phase three activities is critical for long-term growth. It's certainly one of marketing's most vital jobs. So talk about mental availability and how best to keep that in mind and grow a, a strong brand. And again, you know, this is chapter 13. This is one of the new parts. And I thought it was really uh, very interesting, very smart, and very overlooked in a lot of uh, B2B marketing books. Yeah, so mental availability, as I said, is that people will think of you when they are ready to buy. And and I gave that example of, of that call I got as a as a VP of BizDev. And so very often, companies only look at one vendor. 
and that's a vendor that's been sourced internally that they've been following or some key person at the company has been following you know for a few years and now like that you know a uh, customer said to me now they were ready i found that surprising that so many aren't looking at more than one yeah it, it's definitely the case they may look at two three at the most but it's not like you know they're starting out by saying you know, what are all the CRM companies that we could look at? Or what are all the, you know, uh, concrete providers or diesel fuel or whatever it is that you need to buy, mm -hmm. accountants? You know, they start off uh, customers. I give an example of how a consultancy surveyed their customers and who had just bought a, a digital asset management system. And these were big companies. Those are big systems. And a majority of them had only uh, talked to one vendor. And I've seen this from people at other companies uh, that are selling to small companies. Because, again, uh, you know, Douglas, if you think of how overwhelming it can be for a small company to be considering, you know, even doing this at all, they may say, you know, this guy was referred to me. You know, they're, they're supposed to be great. I'm, I'm going to go with them. Mm-hmm. So anyway, a lot of sales happen in the dark almost. I use, you know, the classic marketing iceberg example of, you know, you see the small number of opportunities above the water, but there's a lot of opportunities below the water that come and go and you just are not aware of them at all. And those are the ones that are – that's why these phase three activities, building the mental availability – become so profitable in the long run because you're the company that now your uh, potential customers are thinking about at that key moment when they do want to buy what you're selling. And even if they start to search at that point, they may not be searching for other vendors. They may just be searching to kind of educate themselves to have conversations with the one or two that they're going to actually talk to. You know, in, in Scott Brinker's marketing uh, landscape, Every category has hundreds of companies. It's like 10,000 logos now, I think. It is. It is. And, and they're not bad. You know, there aren't many companies that you look up at their online reviews and they're bad. Those companies are out of business. They all have to be good. And uh, a lot of companies, you know, I give the example early in the book of MailChimp. And MailChimp, you know, it's a very good company. They have very good software. They're now owned by Intuit. But supposedly they had easier to use software, but when you actually looked at the ratings, it wasn't easier to use. It was good, but it wasn't like way ahead of everybody else. It ranked 11th for ease of use, but they had great marketing. And so I have no doubt that MailChimp closed lots of deals where no one looked at any competitor. And if they looked at a competitor, maybe they looked at constant contact, you know, you know, one other, but, they didn't look at five or 10. That's mm -hmm. very rare. So that's why it's so critical. And then it's so, it's so important, as I talk about in, in Chapter 13, and this is research from Les Bennett and Peter Field, that lead gen messages tend to be rational. They tend to be, download our white paper, sign up for our webinar, you know, 10% off. Branding messages tend to be emotional. And they're going to be specific to each industry, to each company, to, to their customers. And those are the things that have stories and humor, and those are the, the ads that you remember from when you were a kid. 
you don't remember a Legion ad five minutes later, but there are ads that you saw, you know, 30, 50 years ago, if you're old enough, that you remember. And those are great branding ads that that hit your emotions. And that's what building mental availability is about. Creativity is so critical to that. And there are some people who even say you need two different teams. You need one team for brand and one team for lead gen because the thinking and the skills are so different. Right. And you, as you touched on earlier, right, since brand messages have a fundamentally different strategy than lead gen ones, running many lead gen programs does not strengthen your brand. But brand programs do improve your lead gen results. Uh, yeah. Very interesting. Cool. And I get very brave to – to put that chapter in there, and I think it was very, very helpful. It's just not as simple as people who think, oh, well, we can measure the lead gen. Therefore, that's all we're going to do. So again, back to the joke about Nike and <laughs> Apple and, and Coca-Cola. <clears throat> so I want to jump ahead to just a couple other things before we wrap up here. And one of them is on search engine optimization. And folks, if you are spending more than a nickel on any kind of search engine SEO work, whatever you think that might be, <laughs> you owe it to yourself to read this one chapter on search engine optimization. You read this, you're going to know more than, than most people that are getting ripped off by SEO companies. And on page 222, you write, no area of marketing has a higher number of disreputable vendors than SEO, what are sometimes called black hat vendors. Just think of how many times you've gotten emails promising you the number one Google search ranking. So, Louis, how can people be more cognizant of getting ripped off, and, and why are people still hiring these companies to do to basically to tinker with their website or, or whatever it is they claim they're doing? Yeah, it is uh, always interesting uh, when I, you know, I'm talking to a company and I can see that the basics of SEO haven't been done, and they tell me they just spent twenty five thousand dollars six months ago with a firm and, and it doesn't make them happy. And that story in the book, in that chapter on SEO, it made my blood boil. Oh yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's not uncommon, unfortunately, as you said, Douglas, you know, people need to, if they're not personally familiar with SEO and how to do it to some degree, it's a, it's a very useful chapter to read before you hire a vendor. And look at sites that they've done. Look at their own site. I, you know, I've seen companies that claim to have great SEO that their own that they do great SEO and their own site has terrible SEO. Right, like an SEO or like a social media guru <laughs> who has fifteen followers. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know why it keeps happening. It it does, uh, you know. But I get scams all the, you know, I get spam email all the time from companies offering a lot of different services and it you know as we've said email is almost free so you know they can just keep sending them out and if one in a thousand hits someone just when they need an seo uh vendor you know they're going to make money off of it one of the questions i find interesting is if somebody's saying oh we're going to help you with your seo and believe it or not i've spoken to marketers who say oh we've got a firm that's doing seo for us and I say, oh, okay, what, what is it they're doing? I don't know, but they're doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they can't tell me what they're doing. Or the CFO at another company, I remember saying, when I talk, I was uh, t- giving a workshop on something else. And I said, when I talk about SEO, what does that mean to you? Just to see if there was any awareness. And the CFO said, a black hole of money. 
<laughs> we, we paid them every month. We didn't know what they were doing. But I think one of the important questions to ask is, are you producing content? Are you, do you have anything to do with content? I always thought that yeah. was a great way to find out if they were legit at all. No, I think that's an excellent point. And, and SEO could have been in the center of the bullseye because it certainly has to do with the, um, the website, which is otherwise in the center of the bullseye. But it's in phase three simply because it can take a while. And the center of the bullseye is more focused on what, yes. can, what can achieve results in, in a few months. Exactly. No, you, you, I think you put it in the right place. It was, again, the, the part that I love about the book so much and, and have now for years is the order. Because too many companies expect it to all come together at once. Or, you know, the yeah. companies that'll say, well, marketing takes too long. Well, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Yeah. You got to take a few steps first. And I found that when companies understand, like, okay, we're going to build the foundation, then we're going to build the first floor, then we're going to build the second floor, they start to understand that it's not like flipping the light switch on and suddenly getting uh, electricity. That's what I learned from working with with companies is I realized, you know, as a fractional CMO, that these things like inbound marketing or, or organic social media, which were, you know, supposed to be so powerful, were not fast at all and, and did not produce quick results. Right. It doesn't mean they're not important, but they're not the first thing you ought to be uh, For sure. Yeah. And there were other things that produced very quick results. Yes. Like, yes. like starting to take advantage of the email list and, and conversion rate optimization. And so it's like, get this, you know, get this in the right order, you know, understand how to roll this out. And then, then you can be much more effective. Well, Louis, there's so many things we don't have time to talk about. I've got page after page of, of questions of things that I found interesting. Let me just ask one last question about the book that I think, I think will be helpful for a lot of companies. Explain why Louis Gadima is a skeptic about using organic, unpaid social media for acquiring new B2B customers. Oh, God. Isn't any intelligent person at this point? <laughs> I mean, I, I quote... Louis, the, uh, the whole point is, though, that, like, why do companies not market? I mean, everything in here... I, there were several sections of the book where I, I thought, oh, God, I thought I was taking crazy pills. I'm so glad he, exp <laughs> he explained that. I mean, there's a... But but talk about that, because you say that... Uh, I think you quoted... Um, Avanish. Avanish, yeah. And yeah. He's, he said in 2017... Right. It is time to point out an ugly truth and to be the brave person that you are, the intelligent, rational assessor of reality that you are, and kill all the organic social media activity by your company. All of it. To the side, I wrote, wow. But explain why he's saying that. And, well, and because, you know what? Explain organic part, because a lot of people may not realize what's happened in social media. So there, there's paid social and there's organic social. And paid social, I am a huge fan of. I it's you know a big part of the marketing budgets that i do for you know clients organic social is those free posts you know that you have your your company's linkedin page or facebook page uh and you are um posting you know once a week or once a day or however often you do uh things about the company or you know thought leadership pieces or whatever and those are seen by almost no one um back around 2013 LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter you know they all said you know 
When they were going public. (laughs) Yeah, well, when they had used the companies for long enough to build their platforms, they said, you know, on every other platform like TV or print, you have to pay to reach customers. So, hello, you're going to have to start paying to reach customers now, and we're not going to keep showing your stuff. Plus, frankly, people just didn't want to see it. If you were on Facebook, you wanted to see stuff about your friends and family. If you were on LinkedIn, you wanted to see posts from your colleagues mm-hmm. and other professionals. And, you know, seeing posts from brands was not a very high priority. And so they changed their algorithms so that an organic post now is only seen by 1% or 2% of followers. You know, that's like 1 in 50 of your followers will see one of your posts unless it happens to become tremendously popular or unless you promote it with orga- uh, with paid ads, which is what I do all the time for clients is, you know, if it's a good post, if it's valuable, if it's something you want a lot of people to see, then amplify it with paid social ads. Right. I think a lot of people don't understand that social media platforms are advertising platforms. And it's like if I had a client TV commercial and I took it down to channel three and said, uh, went to the receptionist and said, here, um, you know, here's a, (laughs) here's a TV commercial. Can you air it? And, you know, there might be a couple engineers that would take a look at it, but you got to pay them (laughs) if you want people to see the ad. And that's why most of the chapter people should understand is about how social media advertising is really, really good and really good for targeting people and it can work well. So if you're going to do social media, plan on paying for it. That's really it. Yeah, for sure. And there are some other, you know, there is the rare person who can become a thought leader on on social. You have a tremendous following and, you know, but you started years ago. It takes a long time to build. And I have an interview, you know, with Evan Kerstel, who, you know, has, you know, developed a, a huge following. And, and so using organic social one-to-one to connect with people, to have, you know, like I said, you know, Matt Bergman, you know, pointed me in the right direction in terms of, you know, how brands grow. So those kinds of, you know, personal can be very valuable. Uh, but don't think of it as organic social as a broadcast medium. Yes, yes. Yeah, you, the interview with Evan uh, Kerstel was very interesting. He, he said paid amplification is fantastic. So they, yeah. <laughs> just understand that. So, Louis Gadima, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Um, I think it would be how valuable for B2B, how you, how you need this balance of lead gen and brand and how – absolutely uh, essential creativity is on the brand side. Uh, and I, one of the things I really wanted to do in the book, and I have a, a whole web page of videos and, and uh, video commercials mm-hmm. that I, you know, uh, link to from the book. And we'll um, include that uh, link to that in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com if that's any easier for folks. Yeah, that'd be great. And and so I wanted to point out that not all of your advertising and promotions have to be about you and your product, that there are a lot more creative uh, forms of B2B marketing happening that you should be taking advantage of also and, uh, and have that 50-50 balance between brand and lead gen for optimal long-term growth. Yes. Again, chapter 13, it was very important and such uh, probably the greatest addition 
uh, to this second uh, edition of the book. So what is one thing a listener could do today? Let's just give them something to do to think about the book while they're waiting for it to arrive. I think that they could start looking for those creative examples and start thinking more creatively. Start Look at B2C ads. Look at, you know, flow ads for progressive mm-hmm. or Geico Gecko ads or, you know, think of some of the great B2C ads that you've seen and what makes them great. And then start to think about, well, what would that mean for my business? What if we started to advertise like that? What if we started to market like that? And did events like that that were not just about the product, but also were fun and engaging. And and start to think about how could you change up your marketing to appeal to both the, the logical and the emotional side of your customers. Absolutely. And, you know, for all those marketers worried about chat GPT, <laughs> if you are... To become uh, a successful marketer, you can lean into the creativity and the the aspects of brand building, and you're going to have a job because there's certain things that all that machine learning can't do. It's funny how you uh, mentioned Rand Fishkin. He posted something on LinkedIn the other day, and he it was from the FAQ page (laughs) from uh, OpenAI's website saying, "Look, these are the limitations (laughs) of this Mm -hmm. this Chat GTBT." So. That's a great advice. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Well, some, you know, some, some of the classics, you know, I mentioned, you know, How Brands Grow, Les Bennett and Peter Field's work. Mm-hmm. I still think that for B2B, Crossing the Chasm is one of the best marketing books ever. Mm-hmm. You interviewed Andy Milgan on the myths of branding recently. Yes, great book. That sounded very interesting to me. Yes, I, and I don't have a lot of branding books because, too, well, some, but too many of them that come across my desk are uh, troublesome because they still have the assumption that it's something that the marketing department controls. <laughs> and uh, myths of marketing skewers that about 25 times. Myths of branding, yeah. A, a brand is what you do, not what you say. Yeah, one of the things I say in my book is that your customer experience is the most important part of your brand. Amen. I agree. And you've got a, a section in uh, this book about customer experience and the five E's. But you know what? People can just go get the book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> There's too much to talk about. We could have blown this out into several interviews, but um, we're not going to do that. So, well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, as I mentioned, we're going to include links to everything linkable. Uh, all the books, uh, your site. Uh, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account. And now, dear listener, I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out in some way to Louie. Congratulate him on the book. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank him for honoring me uh, by uh, letting me write the forward to it. Send him a message on LinkedIn or Twitter or on his website. And guests on the show have told me that they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners and getting questions from them. And and not just because Marketing Book Podcast listeners are, as we've discussed, so ridiculously good-looking, Louie. And if you are listening on your smartphone, you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. All these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is Bullseye Marketing, How to Grow Your B2B Business Faster. The author is Louie Gadima. Louie, my friend, thank you very much for returning 
to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. It's been a pleasure. closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you are one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn who said, formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.